Hello and welcome to Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny and with me is my co-host David Moser. David, how are you doing today? Doing really well. Cold winter's day. Glad to be here doing a podcast with you. It is crazy yeah, cold in Beijing right it now. Is. It is. Uh, it's like Minnesota cold, right? And that's you know, no one's ever come to Beijing for the weather. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone's ever said like, "Wow, Beijing, the climate." I really must, you know, sample that. With us today is Dr. Jonathan Chatwin. He's a travel writer and journalist, and he's the author of Long Peace Street: A Walk in Modern China, which chronicles his 20-mile stroll west to east across Beijing on the street known as Chang'anjie, which translated gives us the name of his book. It's going to be out in paperback coming in February. I really enjoyed reading the book. I got to reread it again this week and you know it's it's become one of my favorite books about Beijing um, you know and, and obviously it's gotten a lot of attention around the world too I think even Rana Mitter said a thoughtful and deeply informed account of modern China through the marvelous device of a stroll down Beijing's longest avenue you know when an Oxford professor gives you that kind of uh, kudos for a book that's, that's, that's got to be that's got to feel pretty good yeah no that was uh, really nice and I got to go to the Oxford China Center uh what seems an age ago now it was february of of this year no last year we're what 2021 now um to give a talk uh with rana so yeah that was a real privilege yeah jonathan i've also been enjoying rereading the book uh these few days it's definitely for lovers of beijing it really resonates it's really a labor of love and it's a fantastic book can you just give us a quick summary for the readers people in the audience who have not read the book about what the your impetus for writing it was and and the, the project itself Sure. I mean, so the, as Jeremiah said, the, the concept of the book was um, that I would take two days to walk um, across Beijing along uh, this central east-west axis, um, which has become, it's it's kind of known now as the number one street in China, or certainly that's what the um, the Chinese government like to, to, to deem it. Um, it's very broad, very long, very straight uh, road, and I, I, we'll get into probably the history of, of, of it in a little while. Um, and I chose it because for me, I live just south of it, out in the western suburbs, and I would often travel either along it or under it. Um, subway line one runs runs underneath it, um, sort of travelling around the city. And as, as I did so, I, I came to realise that there were a number of sites, some very famous, so at its centre, Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City, and, and some much less well-known, um, which which to me told some interesting stories about the, the more recent history of, of Beijing and, and, and China more broadly. Um, and so I kind of came to think this might be a good vehicle for a project um, and as, as Jeremiah had, has mentioned my background is is in travel writing um, so I'm always sort of interested in uh, narratives about walking or moving through a place and I think in terms of the kind of rationale behind it I was conscious as well uh, I mean I'm I do a lot of journalism but I'm not a journalist um, that wasn't you know my kind of impetus in writing the book and that a lot of the books that come out of China these days are written by journalists for obvious reasons um, and quite international relations focused perhaps uh, I wanted to try and do something a little bit different um, and I felt that one of the things I loved about being in China and traveling around was the feeling of being 
on the ground, physically moving through the space, the kind of sensory experience of being there. Um, sometimes I felt that was underplayed in some of the journalistic accounts of the country. So I wanted to write something that gave people who had never visited Beijing or China a sense of what it might feel like uh, for those two very hot days uh, in August to walk across the city. For, for those of us who, who love Beijing, and uh, I would be interested to hearing, in hearing whether or not you feel the same the way that we do, there's, there's something exciting about Beijing structurally in that the city itself, although on the surface has changed a lot, the basic outline of the city remains basically the same over the, the many centuries, uh, which means that uh, you know, even uh, there's a, a website where you can actually superimpose Google Maps of the city of Beijing over the, the 1750 uh, Chenlong Emperor map of Beijing, um, and they, they they still map onto each other qu quite well. It's it's it's, a, it's amazing how much of the the basic skeleton and the tissue of the city remains the same. For you, is that one of the exciting things that wherever you went on your walk, you could still see these traces? The buildings may be different or reconditioned, or there may may be some different infrastructure there, but you, you still feel like you're in the same space. There's this magic of being in the same historical location. Is that part of the, uh, the, the, the enchantment for you of, of making this walk? Yeah, I mean, I think Chang'anjie is, is a place where you perhaps don't feel that quite as strongly because it's uh, a more modern imposition. But certainly in terms of Beijing more generally, absolutely, I think the appeal um, is, this, is this rich and storied history um and you know it crops up in in unusual places I, you know I, I i always like the fact that you sort of be traveling somewhere slightly random you know and and, and through these ranks of modern apartment compounds and then there'd be a, a pagoda or a temple and um you know one of the one of the sites you see off the the, the second ring road is is uh Tianning temple which is incredible you know one of the, i think possibly the oldest building in beijing um dating back to the liao dynasty and um you know that 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 has had an, an interesting history in terms of the more modern era it tells a story of uh, you know post 1950s it was taken over and turned into a, a primary school and then it became a paper factory and then they built this big thermal power plant right next to it um you know and so for me some some of the kind of juxtaposition between the old and the new is, was one of the things i was really interested in and one of the things i like about the city i think it's interesting um uh, you know perspective I, I was writing an article about the forbidden city recently and i i talked to quite a few uh chinese academics and and people including matthew who who you had on i think last week or or, or last episode um we were talking about you know for me i feel like a lot of old Beijing uh has been has been lost um a lot of people i talk to actually feel that it's pretty well preserved and i find that quite an interesting you know i'm not sure either of us are particularly right but for me i i i I'm a bit of a nostalgist and I think about what has been lost. I perhaps focus on what has been lost. Uh, whereas actually, yeah, it's important to remember that there is still a remarkable amount of incredibly interesting uh, and significant imperial architecture uh, in Beijing. Uh, but yeah, for me, I think that juxtaposition between the kind of modern and, and certainly the, the post-1950s era with some of the older architecture and that tension um, 
that was a result really of the of, you know the communists adopting a capital that was anathema to everything they believed in right you know they they chose a city that embodied in its architecture the feudal system they were there to to kind of, you know overthrow and 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 had railed against f- for decades so yeah I, I find that tension very interesting yeah i mean think so so many books that have been written about beijing's imperial past and i think one of the things that i really enjoyed about your book was the attention that you paid to the 20th century transformations. And I know that, you know, there are a lot of questions about how those transformations were done, what was left, what was what was destroyed, you know, the city walls were taken down. You know, obviously many of the older temples, some of the older structures were gone, although the footprint remains. But part of the new government was also overlaying their own capital onto this imperial footprint. And I think that's why, that's why I think this story about Chang'an Boulevard is so interesting because as you go along it, you're taking in the monuments of 20th century transformation. And I was wondering, as you were walking, I mean, you start all the way in the West at these great ironworks, now going to be a winter Olympic venue, the Shogong Steelworks. As you start down there and you walk East, you know, what are the, what, which of these new monuments to the new Beijing or to the new China really impressed you the most? I think the place that originally fascinated me, um, because I lived pretty close to it actually, was um, just down the road from the, the Shogong Ina Steelworks out in the west is Babaoshan Revolutionary Cemetery, which is where the, um, it was established in the 1950s and um, on sort of Zhou Enlai's advice, they wanted a national cemetery to bury the martyrs of the revolution. Um, and I tried a couple of times to get in in there and kind of overzealous guards had, had warded me away, although, you know, you can, you can go and visit. Um, and it's a fascinating place to me, it embodies some of the contradictions I think of, of uh, communism in China, uh, because it's it's a cemetery built on a on a hillside, and at the bottom of the hill you have um, some of the old temple buildings there, and then these ranks of gravestones, which were for the sort of foot soldiers of the revolution, and then as you go up the hill you get to these more grandiose. Uh, grave sites, which were for, um, you know, some of the more important CCP leaders who had died. And some of them are incredibly elaborate with sort of bronze statues and huge kind of marble effigies or tombs. Um, and, and that was one of the places that really got me interested because when you dug away at the history of, of that place, um, as I say, it was built on what was originally an old temple site. Um, which was then turned into a home for imperial eunuchs after their retirement. Um, uh, and then they were kicked out and sent on their way. And, and then it was reformed into this kind of memorial to um, those who had been lost in, in, the, in the revolution. So, um, yeah, places like that seem to embody, you know, I think the nice thing about Beijing is is if you dig deep enough, there's always another story kind of underneath the surface. You know, it's such a long history to the city. Um, so that was kind of one of the places that got me really interested. I think visually, it, it, you know, it is an impressive, certainly at the centre, it's an impressive space. It's designed to give you a sense of kind of awe. And um, it, it was built in the 1950s to showcase these, um, some of Beijing's 10 great buildings, which were these kind of big wedding cake, socialist realist co- constructions that um, were 
uh, built as national projects uh, f- for the 1959 anniversary, the 10-year anniversary of, of CCP rule. And so you've got places like the Military Museum, what's now the National Museum, the Great Hall of the People, uh, the, the Beijing Railway Station, all of which draw a lot of inspiration from um, kind of Stalinist ideas of what a city should look like. And it was a result really of, of the fact that that. that the Chinese Communist Party had so many Soviet advisors uh, in town for the for certainly the first few years of the uh, of their rule, and I mean they are they do kind of have a a visually impressive quality, and I think they 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 do evoke. I think for a European, the only other place you'll see them is in kind of Eastern Europe and Russia. They do evoke a. Um, sense of that kind of contested period which is now i think not really much talked about what 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 is chinese architecture what is the chinese city these were the questions that the ccp were asking um after they could took control and it it i mean i would say that's still a question that's going on you know that, that i think that's still an unresolved question what does a chinese city look like what does modern chinese architecture look like but but certainly that debate that was happening in the, in the 50s the resulting as i said these kind of wedding cake constructions with spires and stars and neoclassical columns um they do have a kind of uh, yeah power i mean I, it's not my favorite style of architecture but you can kind of see why they why they went for that it does embody some sort of um, martial power, I guess. I want to mention uh, or quote something you wrote in the book that, that struck me. Uh, you said the street, meaning Chang'anjie, uh, has came to seem to me to equivalent of a geological core sample in which just as each layer of the cylindrical rock relates the story of a physical era, so each intersection, each building, each sign and statue seem to have something to say about the decades of turbulence which begot modern China and which continue to crucially influence the way the country views itself and its future. I found that to be that metaphor to be quite uh, compelling. And it struck me that when I go down Chang'anjie, that uh, those memories of the, 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 the core the core sample sort of is based upon when I sampled the core. So for me, buildings stick out, uh, such as the Friendship Hotel, which is so typical of 80s architecture and was an important place for, for foreigners, for sure, and, and, and now has faded into obscurity. Also, Wang Fujing and, and the way that's that, that has changed. Probably most people don't even think about it who came to China in the 90s and the 2000s. But for me, those are landmarks. Sure. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time reading... Um... Western travel accounts uh, to Beijing um, before I before I wrote the book, um, and there's a sort of golden age of the of the 1930s, I suppose, of, of travel accounts from um, from Beijing. Uh, what I find interesting is is exactly what you're talking about the way the sort of centre of gravity has shifted for those visitors over time. So, uh, you know, for, for that generation of the 1930s, it was the foreign legation court, so just east of Tiananmen. Um, for you know, obviously, there's a there's a large period where um, there aren't very many Western visitors to uh, Beijing, but the centre of gravity shifts because the embassy district, partly because the embassy district is moved outside the walls to uh, just outside Tianguoman, and that becomes for visitors in the 80s and 90s an important place. And as you mentioned, Wang Fujing is a kind of uh, ground zero for for Chinese capitalism. And then now, I mean, I, I find it interesting that even in the you know relatively recent past that has has changed i mean when i was there um you know for westerners like me it was the hutong where the, you know life was centered around the you know the restaurants and the bars and that was where place people hung out and you know in the last uh what four years three four years 
they have been um, sort of Disneyfied. A lot of those small restaurants and, and bars have been closed. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to uh, Jordan Schneider on his podcast and he was, you know, he was going on about how much he loves Chinese malls. And it strikes me that that now is the new place where people, you know, or, orient themselves around where, where kind of social life happens. So it's no longer as it was in the 30s, the rooftop of the Peking Hotel. It's, you know, some seventh floor restaurant in a, in a modern mall out in the eastern suburbs of, of Beijing. So, yeah, that's an interesting um yeah, it's an interesting point. And of course, what I'm talking about is that, you know, the Western experience of Beijing. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I feel it's important, you know, I, I'm not a Beijinger, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not from China. And so I don't want to overstate my um, kind of ownership of and knowledge about the city. So I, I, in a way that was intentional that I was focusing on the Western experience. But one of the things that was really nice for me after I wrote the book was that I would talk to people from Beijing um, or, you know, at talks that I would do, people would come up to me who had lived in Beijing for a long time and there was history that they perhaps had not heard before, partly because, of course, some of the things that I talk about in the book are um, are not widely talked about in in, in, in mainland China, um, uh, for example, Xidan, which a lot of people now will know as, uh, as a site of uh, malls, um, was, a, was a place where there was a democracy wall in the late 70s where people would go and uh, put up posters, um, you know, demanding greater, greater individual freedoms. Um, so, you know, some of, some of those resonances are different for a Western audience than for a Chinese audience for, for political reasons, of course. Yeah, I, sometimes I go by those places. This this gets into this issue of, you know, Beijing as a palimpsest, that, that the, the basic, the places are still there. What's on top of it may be different. But you mentioned the democracy wall. I remember, uh, you know, coming back there uh, in the 90s and trying to find exactly where that wall was. And in fact, it is possible to, if you remember, you can actually sort of go there and and imagine it. But everything there is, is, is of course, been demolished and it's new buildings in its place. The same way I feel when I'm at Shenwoman and I see uh, the, 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 the Matteo Ricci church and uh, the place where, where the elephant stables used to be, you know, and even though the, everything's different, you're still standing there and you can actually piece those, put those pieces of the puzzle together. So it's uh, that that's something special about Beijing. I think also the outlines are still there. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know um, a lot of the structure, the kind of skeleton of the city, is remarkably similar. I think that's partly because you know Chinese urban planning, its ancient principles are oriented around a symmetry that's still uh, adhered to, even in in sort of modern Chinese city planning. If you go um, to for example, Shenzhen, you know, that's still a city that's oriented around north to south axes of significant buildings. Now, their significant buildings are skyscrapers and exhibition centres rather than kind of imperial palaces. But but that's that that kind of structure, that, that basic skeleton has, has remained uh, intact. They haven't tried to kind of change that um, in the modern era. Well, one, one thing that uh, I, I used to get my students hooked on... Uh, this aspect of China was I said, every time you take the uh, the Line 2 subway or go on the Second Ring Road, you're basically uh, traveling on the on the tracing the, the footsteps of the of the city wall. And then the, then suddenly those those gates begin to mean something to them. They, they become less abstract. And I think that's that's for many people, that sort of thing is the sort of hook that gets them into the 
the historical aspects of Beijing because it's still there in the names, in the outlines, and in the, the, the as you say, the skeleton of the city is still there. Even the hutong, even the hutongs. One of the spaces I think that has changed the most in terms of the city center is the very city center. That is the area around Tiananmen. And if you take a look at the maps of pre-20th century Beijing and 20th century Beijing, and that's the area that's been transformed perhaps more than any other part of the city. And I, I, I think it's a, a fascinating place to look at because there's so much both history and, of course, a lot of memory there. But in some ways, the history isn't necessarily as old as we think it is. I mean, one of the things you'll sometimes still see is like, uh, you know, um, journalists standing there going, you know, standing on the ancient stones of Tiananmen Square. And you're kind of like, dude, it's not that old. Elvis had three number one hits before there was a Tiananmen Square. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's not ancient anyway. And when you, when you stand there in the center of that space and you see so many monuments, both that want to impose a certain kind of historical memory and also, if we will, want to distract from other historical memories, whether it's 1976, of course, 1989. And you have a really interesting phrase, or I, I've heard you use a really interesting phrase regarding the control of the spaces and the attempts to kind of shift, the, shift and shape that narrative. The idea of kind of telling history backwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the thing that I, I find most interesting about visiting uh, Chinese historical sites today is trying to tease out what it is that the Chinese Communist Party are trying to foreground uh, in order to sort of legitimise themselves, um, in order to create a narrative um, about Chinese strength and national power. Um, and I think you can't really find a more evocative place for the telling of that story than Tiananmen Square. Um, as you say, it's a, it's a place that gives a sense that it has been there for an awfully long time. And I, I often read, actually, even in uh, kind of academic, maybe not academic, but sort of popular history books about things that happened in Tiananmen Square, you know, in, in 1919, for example, or in the 19th century. And you think, well, actually, it wasn't a square then, you know, it was this sort of, you know, it was a corridor. It was a T. Yeah, exactly. It was, it, it was, it was kind of a T. A T-shaped, uh, you know, with this with this long co uh, corridor running up, um, a gate that is where Mao's mausoleum um, was, was built in the centre there. Uh, so it has changed enormously in shape um, and scale. Um, and, you know, th that story goes back to when, the, you know, early 1950s and the debates over, well, what should we do about this imperial architecture that, that is in and around the Forbidden City, at the centre of the city? Um, and there were, you know, Liang Sichang wanted to build a, a centre outside, a new administrative centre outside to the west um, and preserve the, the architecture. And, and that was a decision that, uh, you know, it seems that, that Mao himself made that actually, no, we're going to send the, the new government along Tiangantie and around Tiananmen Square. Um, and so in terms of the story that that is trying to tell, I think if you um, you look at some of the monuments there or you go into the National Museum on, on, on the eastern side um, and it's very much about um, the idea that, uh, you know, the century of humiliation in which China was... Um, was degraded by outside forces, was weak. Um, and then this kind of very confusing, you know, what the CCP like to do is they like to sort of take 
um, any protest movement that happened in that century and sort of draw these these lines of best fit which kind of which then lead up inexorably to to 1949 you know it's it's, it's an incredibly distorted way of looking at these kind of various movements that happen in the early 20th century but if you go and you look at some of the monuments there and the kind of uh, the pictographic representation of that story um or if you go to the National Museum, there's an exhibition, a permanent exhibition there called The Road to Rejuvenation. Um, and that is, you know, that tells that in a very, very linear way. Um, and, and you realise that this is a space that is intended to, uh, you know, is intended to make people feel a certain way about China and about their capital. Um, and is almost the diametric opposite of what public squares you know evolved to be city squares were piazzas where you know you had in europe fountains cafes churches they were places of trade and uh, and you know people moving through and even moving through or getting onto tiananmen square is is a struggle i mean uh, you know i don't i don't bother i mean jeremiah i guess you you spend a lot of time getting on there and, and, and moving around but you know just getting on there's a you know you got to go through your passport check and you got to go into those horrible dingy tunnels and then you know crossing the road you know it's all it's 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 designed to be a protected space um so yeah i think it's a pretty evocative um evocative place and i think the other interesting um aspect about it is that mausoleum that has Mao in it in the in the middle of it and the you know which is a pretty horrible bit of architecture i think even by the standards of the sort of socialist realist uh you know i, I prefer that it's also it's also bad feng shui yes you have to say <laughs> yeah and of course it sits on that north south line you know in, in the intention of, of kind of according mao um that kind of reverence uh, but what they do with that building and what they do with him i think will be an interesting question that will at some point have to be addressed i mean i i know that you know most people think he's 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 wax anyway but you know he, he can't uh, he can't stay there forever um so I, that was a, you know for me that was a sort of interesting question um, there have been debates over the last 20 years or so what they're going to do with with that uh, with his body um and it's you know no, nobody likes to mention it but at some point they're going to have to they're going to have to address it and there may have even been discussions not any that we're privy to of people you know and with positions of power asking themselves, okay, let's get out the whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> let's make a list of countries that pickle their leaders and put them on display. Mm -hmm. Let's make a list of countries that do not do that. Which list looks better to be yeah. on? And yeah, maybe that's maybe eventually Mao will find a more dignified resting place. One of the things about Beijing, I think, is that it's always, or for much of its history, it's been kind of a planned city as a capital city. There's been a sense of urban planning. And I think that's one thing that makes Beijing so special when you compare it to cities that may have developed more organically, like some of the cities in China's south. Now, today, of course, the, the central government and local governments are very much into controlled urban planning or attempts to control urban planning. And I know that you've recently been researching a lot about the Pearl River Delta, which is an area that even though I'm not based down there, I'm fascinated with. A couple of years ago, I did my own long walk from the Guangzhou train station to the airport in Shenzhen. And uh, I mean, just kind of going through the area. And part of it was a fascination with sort of what does it look like when you try to create an urban space? And of course, now Beijing is going through another big shift little bit influenced by what's happening down south in the Pearl River Delta. And that's the creation of this, you know, new concept of Jingjinji or the, the Xiong'an 
um, city that that's going to be coming online in a not so distant future. And I thought we, we talked a little bit about the past. Maybe you could talk a little bit what you kind of see as the future of this kind of urban planning, urban design as it relates to these new mega cities that are going to become a reality for so many of China's residents. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, when you look at the sort of modern era of Chinese urban planning and what is trying to be achieved in in in, in you know right now um in a way the ccp's approach to this was was ruined by the success of shenzhen because shenzhen was so successful in 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 um in so many different w- ways you know certainly economically um that the model for a long time has just been to sort of try and replicate that effect by either having kind of tacking on these special zones to existing cities. And uh, now that seems to be moving towards, you know, making them sort of areas of, of for high tech or AI, that sort of thing. Um, or building entirely new cities, which try and replicate um, the kind of economic miracle in inverted commas of, of Shenzhen. Um that, to be honest with you, even within the four special economic zones that were first established, Shenzhen was by far and away the most successful. So replicating that effect is not straightforward. What's interesting about Xiongan um, and this kind of plan for for Hebei, um, the, the province that, that surrounds uh, Beijing, is that they seem to be trying to tweak that model away from sort of big skyscrapers and densely populated cities towards what they're I mean the trouble is you know this is what they're saying what will actually look like I have no idea because it, it, it isn't finished yet but towards a much less um, kind of densely populated city much lower rise much more um, ecologically friendly uh, place and, and it's only going to be I think about 5 million people to begin with this this city and the idea is that some of the non-capital functions so the things that Beijing don't need to do um, for example some universities healthcare that sort of thing are going to be moved out to Xiongan um, some of the headquarters for uh, big companies are going to be moved out there to sort of take the pressure off um, Beijing and there's now obviously a population cap on Beijing where, uh, as well as Shanghai, where they want to try and restrict the number of people living there. And it's kind of allied with a, a project where they're, you know, um, build up Tongzhou to the east as, as another place they can they can kind of push some of these non-capital functions out to. Um, Xi Jinping has kind of put his name pretty publicly to this uh, project of Xiongan. So I think there's very little doubt that it will be, in inverted commas, a success because they will, you know, pump enough money and I think it's the biggest public infrastructure in terms of money the biggest public infrastructure project in Chinese in Chinese history so it's a pretty it's a pretty massive um, public works project so I think they will make they will find a way of making it successful by the terms that they they impose upon it I think what's different about Xiongan um, to some of the hugely successful cities of the Pearl River Delta is that it's kind of stuck in the middle of kind of nowhere i mean if you go out there there were i mean i spent uh, did a couple of trips out there there's a, a very nice lake which they spent a lot of money re- regenerating um and then there were quite a few small towns and, and, and villages um uh, you know kind of slightly industrial or small you know m- sort of small industry uh, villages and towns um a couple of bigger cities but yeah it's you know if you think of the advantages that shenzhen had Right, just over the border from Hong Kong, uh, you know, it's a it's a port. You know, you need that that you can export and import easily to it. Uh, Xiongan doesn't have any of those things. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how that develops over the over the next decade or so. 
What was the name of that blogger you, you cite in your book who wrote a scathing blog post about how Beijing was no longer a city? Yeah, is it, and, I think it's uh, Zhang, Zhang Gu Mao, is it? Is, I, I'd have to say. Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, what do you think of that? I mean, with with this Jingjingji project and everything, and, and having being a long-term resident of Beijing, I sort of resonated with that post a lot. I mean, I feel like, in a certain sense, it's it's like several cities clumped together in a monstrous, in monstrous hybrid kind of thing. What do you think about that? Is, is Beijing losing its soul? Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, having done that walk in, in, in Guangdong, Jeremiah, you will know that, you know, people talk about the size of those cities around the Pearl River Delta. And it's very difficult to measure that now because they, they have kind of merged, you know, there's very little you know, you move through from Shenzhen and then Dongguan and then Guangzhou and, you know, where one ends and the other begins is very hard to, to define. Um, so, yeah, that question of what is a city? I mean, obviously, I don't know, I imagine we'll talk about, you know, Beijing cities, city walls, but that was one of the defining things in Chinese history of what is a city is, well, it's a walled enclosure, right? Um, that idea of these areas that are separated off by physical boundaries is is, is long gone and, and clearly what they're trying to um, recreate up in, in Hebei. But as I say, the economy of Hebei and its location is very, very different to that of the Pearl River Delta and, and whether they can, you know, economically uh, pull off the same magic trick, um, I don't know. Mm. I think in terms of that, that blog post that uh, you, you were mentioning, it was... Uh, I think the title is something like uh, it's a, Beijing is a city of 20 million inhabitants pretending to have a life or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. And uh, <laughs> it touched on a few things, one of which was the size and, and scale of Beijing now, um, which has spread across, you know, the plain, this kind of frying pan, flat plain, as it's called, um, and, is, and is now pretty, pretty enormous. I mean, if you, um, in, this, in this article, uh, the writer talks about how if you're, you know, if you live on the eastern side of the city and you're going out with somebody who lives in in Shijingshan, for example, it, you're in a long distance relationship, right? Long distance relationship. <laughs> yeah, which I, I, it's kind of yeah. true because I, I remember coming back when I from when I lived in in Beijing and I I, I was going to see a friend in London and I, I got the train down to to Marleybone station and he lives out in Brixton and I got on the on the subway on the on the on the underground and I kind of settled in because in my mind I was still in Beijing mode where this was going to be like an hour of my life that you know <laughs> I was sitting on this and yeah. then you know 15 20 minutes later you know the the train pulls in and you're, you're almost at the, the, the end of the end of the line so yeah that scale is quite it's quite hard to get used to I think yeah, I, was, uh, I spent some time last summer uh, uh, with my daughter in New York City, and I felt the same way. I said, "This is a large, this is a major city, but you can get back and forth pretty easily yeah. across." It changes the nature of what living in a city is entirely when it gets to the size that Beijing is. Um, where actually, um, you know, when I lived there, I, I tended not to travel. You know, unless I unless I had to very far out of my neighbourhood, because you know the idea of me going, I lived in that in the west. The idea of me going to you know a, a restaurant out in the east, well, that was going to be an hour and twenty minutes of my you know just getting there, exactly. right? So it sort of shrinks right. the city. Um, and I think one of the things that you know writers on urbanisation ha have observed about Chinese city planning is that in terms of livability, they are. You know, especially as they grow bigger and bigger, they're becoming much less livable, much less walkable. The block sizes are increasing. Um, the local amenities that are accessible on foot are fewer. The roads are getting wider and harder to cross. And, you know, so in terms of the effect, I think 
that blog post does touch on that. But I think in terms of the you know the modern what the modern Chinese city looks like, if you look at Shenzhen again, that was a city that was kind of oriented around the car um, and some of the new areas that they're building. They're really emphasising the idea of you know, walkability and um, and livability and having you know places to which which places to eat and and, and socialise. Which of course is in a way going back to what Beijing used to be you know and having a much more you know livable city in which you're part of a a local a a small local community it certainly ceased to be a walking city Mm. (laughs) that's for sure can can i ask two short questions and you can give short answers Mm -hmm. just two two quick questions one is um you know xi jinping uh, uh, recently came out against what he called strange buildings or weird architecture i don't know what the, the i can't remember what the chinese was for it um, and I think he was a kind of thinking of, of the, the Beijing 2008 Olympics buildings, which, uh, you know, when those came up, I didn't like them. I thought this, these, this is, these are not going to age well. And I don't I think they have not. Every time I drive by those, I, I really find them embarrassing. What do you what do you think about that? Is <laughs> the legacy of Beijing 2008? Yeah, I mean, I think the, part of the problem is, of course, they, they didn't for a lot of the venues, they didn't um, keep you know keep using them I, I passed by the velodrome in the in the book and and that was always you know i would go up there quite regularly and it was you know the car park was always empty and there was like weeds growing up and you know there were showcase buildings that were built and then and then slightly with with, with exceptions um the same with the basketball arena a bit further down um which now is like the i don't know what it's called anymore it's like the mastercard arena and they have concerts and stuff They're like that that struggled to find a purpose for, for a bit of time so i think i mean you find this don't you in, in in, in London too, trying to repurpose some of the uh, the legacy architecture from the Olympics was not not a straightforward thing necessarily to do. Um, I think he was going after as well some of the some of the kind of odd new skyscraper designs that you were seeing appear not perhaps so much in 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 tier one cities but some of the tier two and tier three cities where you would have some pretty bonkers um like i can't remember which is it ushi maybe where they've got the tea museum and it's a like it's absolutely enormous right. and it's in the shape of a teapot and it re- and it revolves <laughs> right it's a revolving teapot right so i think it was i, right. I think it was partly stuff like that that he was and i think he, he it, that was in a speech i don't I don't know whether you've you read the speech but it was in a speech about chinese art more broadly and what its purpose was and you know this the kind of nationalistic endeavor that all artists should be engaged upon and, and so the architecture line was sort of part of a broader argument about what what chinese chinese art should be doing okay and then the second question is a tantalizing bit of information in your book now now jiang qing mao's wife jiang qing was not one of the luminaries buried at uh Shan. It turns out that when she died, her ashes were not scattered in her hometown or her home province as she had hoped. Uh, but she was actually at Yusei, was, was her remains are at a cemetery in northwest Beijing, and you don't say which one, and that the tombstone, tombstone or the marker is under one of her many pseudonyms. I would love to go there and see that and take a picture of it. That's an amazing <laughs> fact that I never knew. Can you shed more light on that? Sure. So, I mean, that question of what do you do with, um, you know, the bodies or, or, or ashes of, of these controversial figures and, and obviously who is controversial changes over time. So I talk in the book a bit a bit about uh, Peng De Huai, the former defence minister who um, who ended up at Baoshan uh, after being 
rehabilitated by by Deng Xiaoping. Um, you know, it's a fraught question um, when you're trying to manipulate historiography in the way the CCP are, um, and as people come in and out of acceptable, uh, you know, acceptability. Um, yeah, where do you put them, and, and how do you treat those sites, which can become obviously sites of uh, of pilgrimage? Um, so she was buried out in a cemetery. It's uh, Futian Cemetery up in the northwest, um, kind of not far from uh, Ping Wuyuan. Um, it's it's uh, you know, uh, and and you can go you, you can go and visit. I think there was um, there was always a lot of uh, protection there around Qingming where they were trying to dissuade people from going and leaving flowers or tributes. But actually, interestingly, over the last couple of years, that has been permitted for the first time again. Um, so, you, you know, there, there, was, there was an article a couple of years ago about uh, people, uh, Maoist groups um, from, I think, Jiangsu or, you know, anyway, not, not from Beijing, making a pilgrimage and leaving flowers there so um if you feel moved to do so david you can uh, you can head there next year i'm gonna i'm year. gonna i'm gonna go there with jeremiah next week and we're gonna have our picture taken yeah. there i think live, that's a great live, live podcast of david and i getting arrested at the cemetery <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't remember what the I can't remember what the uh, pseudonym is. So if you if you go there, you, you'll have to let me know. It's not Lanping. Is that is that it? I don't think it is. No. Okay. no. All right. Then we'll I think we'll, I, th- I think that was what that was her stage name, wasn't it? I yeah, think there was that's her stage name. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll figure it out and we'll go there. We'll let you know. We'll send you a photo. Great. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, Jonathan, I I really want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us, and uh, I really hope that people go out and get a copy of the book. It's called Long Peace Street: A Walk Through Modern China. Uh, it's available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. And uh, it's been a real treat to speak with you today. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a, a real pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening today, and we'll talk to you again soon. 